Hello, 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 and welcome to Center Ed Teachings Podcast. Uh, this week, we're going to switch things up a little bit from talking about traditional K-12 education, whether that's the traditional K-12 educational space or policy, um, and talk about education of those who are incarcerated. And to do that, I have two guests with me today who know a little something about that process uh, because of their work on Rikers. So uh, I have with me Greg. Hey, how's it going? And Courtney. <laughs> hey, how you doing? Um, so the first thing we want to do to start off this conversation is just kind of talk about what um, education for those who are incarcerated uh, looks like. And oftentimes when we talk about this in a general sense, it's more of an idealized version of what this education look like looks like than maybe it does um, in actual practice. So I think one thing that's helpful to start this conversation for those who are listening is to get a, a clearer sense of what the student body looks like for those that are in this educational space. And I was wondering, Courtney, can you maybe give us some insight into um, who is represented sure. in this population? Sure. So um, just to differentiate, uh, the work that Greg and I have done specifically has been in a jail in Rikers, um, which is not a prison. So it is either a pre-sentencing facility where people are sort of detained waiting to be sentenced and then they're moved to another prison or they're serving out a sentence that's about a year or shorter and then they stay. So I think just to be clear that education looks kind of different and populations look different mm -hmm. depending on the prison, whether you're in a prison or a jail. Um, but at Rikers, I know that, well, statistically, <laughs> there are like between 10,000 and 11,000 inmates. Um, traditionally, generally, and about 800 of them, give or take, are women, and then the rest of them are men. Uh, New York State and South Carolina are pretty much the only two states at this point that try 16 to 17-year-olds as adults. Yeah. So Rikers, as Greg and I know only too well, has a population of up to maybe 300 at some points, about 200 when we've been there, 16 to 17-year-olds, uh, males and females, mostly males. So that might give you a picture. Um, is it ethnically diverse? Um, there are definitely Latino folks who are incarcerated, but I would have to say that the majority are African American and the great majority are folks of color. And I just think that's important to recognize. But there are women and men, and there are people who are mentally ill, and there are people who are not. Uh, there are some people who have a, a who are accused of more serious crimes. And for some, the population there, they may have just, it might be like a very low level um, vandal charge or you know stealing a backpack, for example, mm -hmm. um, at least accused of that, or a low level drug charge. So there's a big range. So, Any other questions? Yeah, no, so I think obviously the portrait that you're painting right now is that there is a lot of diversity in the sense of That's what right. crime someone um, might be charged with to um, their mental health at the particular time that they are in the, um, the jail. That's right. I guess I also wonder, it seems then, if you have so many people from different walks of life, are there different um, educational experiences that these students have prior to oh, coming Oh, yeah. In? I think that's a great starting point right there, that, um, yeah, you're going to have some people who have interrupted education. So for example, they are supposedly in high school, 16 or 17 years mm -hmm. old, but they are um, you know, truant, to use the traditional term. They're, they really haven't found success in high school, or they're not going on a daily basis. Um, you definitely, and I think the statistics hold this up, you're going to find a higher percentage of students who live in shelters. 
um, who, or who live in deep poverty um, and come from really difficult backgrounds. And part of that would be their educational backgrounds, um, whether they were, i.e., not going to school every day or not experiencing education that was really um, motivating them and, and helping them succeed. So, yeah, I think there's a variety. Um, so one thing that obviously is interesting to think about with this population are when we think about education in a carceral space, like what is the purpose or goal behind this form of education? And the debate really comes down between uh, two different camps. One, the idea that this is a moral education that is part of the reforming of um, the inmate or possible inmate um, back into society or the idea that you are getting the skills and or credentials that you need to have greater accessibility to the labor market um, when you return. I mean, I guess thinking about your specific context, what have you really seen kind of bear fruit or in action at Rikers? Okay, I, I think that these are really good questions, Matt. And again, I'd just like to go back to the fact that I think if um, students are in a, a prison setting where they've been sentenced and they're sort of committed, so to speak, to being there and they know they're going to be there for a while, um, then I know that there can be more of an emphasis on long-term college education, for example, or um, developing work skills. And so they have more of an opportunity, if you want to use the word opportunity, to develop those skills and to then come out on the other side if or when they're released um, with some work skills. I know that Rikers is, if the average stay is 45 days, basically the focus at Rikers, and we have to give the school a lot of credit, they take it seriously, is to help those students who are there for a short time really put out what are their goals? Are they working towards a high school equivalency degree? So that would be what we call the task, um, which is kind of the GED equivalent. Are they working towards that? And if so, what kind of goals can we set? Can we have them take that exam as soon as possible? Can we help train them up to take a part of the exam that maybe they're going to be successful on? So there's that focus on getting your high school equivalency. The other track um, is to focus on the more traditional statewide exams, the regents exams, right? So these are both secondary education focused. But one is more the alternative high school equivalency track, and the other would be the high school graduation diploma. And so we see students working on both those tracks. So I guess those are both um, educational. I personally think that the teachers and the counselors, I have to give the counselors in the school lots of credit. They definitely are working with that rehabilitation, supporting the social emotional growth of students, understanding they're in trauma. Um, so there is some of that rehabilitation, but there isn't a ton of time if students mm -hmm. are only there for 45 days. And for, for example, the 16, 17-year-old population, the goal is to have them kind of continue with their New York City education mm -hmm. and be able to go seamlessly back into schools, having stuck with the scope and sequence that was being done both inside and outside, if that makes sense. Um, it's ideal. That's the mm -hmm. ideal. Yeah, and so getting back to the ideal, I mean, it sounds like there's a push for the credentialing or the accessibility That's of the right. credential for the for the labor market at Rikers, and and you're getting into this idea, I think, of the curriculum, whether it's um, a task track or GED track compared to the traditional high school diploma with the Regents exam, and you had mentioned that there's this difficulty and variability of seat time for students, and also kind of the turnover in the population. So, Greg, I mean. 
how do teachers then think about lining up their instruction? Is it a long scope and sequence over the year, like in a traditional uh, school setting with unit plans, or does that differ because the population is turned over so much and comes to bear or comes to class with so many other different things? So, given um, the nature of just the the average stay, it it wouldn't make as much sense to follow the general traditional curriculum. Um, instead, from a math approach, um, we kind of look at inquiry-based inquiry projects, um, and we kind of kind of go in depth. So it's instead of going um, a mile a mile wide mm-hmm. and an inch deep, we kind of like um, go in depth in, into an actual topic. Um, so that students actually leave w- with a, a general familiarity of that actual um, concept um, holistically. Uh, yeah, can you just actually elaborate a little bit more on in terms of what that looks like? Does that mean that like you're scripting a, a unit plan or is this is it project based? Like I guess I'm just trying to get a sense. So this, is, thank you. Um, I'll clarify a little bit more. Um, so this is definitely um, well. What one thing I recommend is um, definitely project based learning. Um, um, partly because partly students will, will learn a lot more through doing and um, and just having these general inquiries with mathematics than to focus on. I think the traditional scope and sequence has twelve units. Um, average of 45 days you can see how 12 units might be very difficult to to kind of achieve um so kind of looking at like a focused uh more focused curriculum for the for um for uh kind of looking at a an average looking at the average stay of a student and and condensing the curriculum down to be a lot more focused so i I guess as you were saying that, all I was thinking about is that we've talked about the time constraints. Um, we've talked about the turnover of the population. We've talked about the the different desires of students. Maybe it's to get that GED track or the high school diploma track. And it just seems that there's a lot of other factors that influence the delivery of the curriculum and maybe even the curriculum itself. And so I was just wondering if you all could speak to maybe some of the constraints to teaching in this setting or like what are some additional um, contextual elements of students that is necessary to know for how people go about doing this work? Do you want this one first? Well, first of all, I mean, <laughs> Greg and I both have a lot to say on this, and, and we discuss it all the time. It's, it's one of our big concerns. Um, I'll just step it back for a moment to the constraints, and then, Greg, you can jump in okay. with all the other stuff. Um, gosh, there are just so many constraints. I mean, Greg and I both feel that in, in schools on the outside of um, prisons and jails, there are a lot of constraints, too, that might be a little bit invisible. But really, students are dealing with a lot, and teachers are dealing with a lot. However, when you step into Rikers, and I'm sure other prisons and jails, some of the constraints are just really glaring and obvious. I mean, one of them is that uh, you know the students are inmates. They're, they're students, but first, they're really inmates. And what that means is that they've been stripped of a lot of their power and a lot of their agency and decision-making. And it means that, for example, they come to class, they don't really go anywhere. They have to stay in the same building all day, generally the same classroom all day, um, with you know corrections officers, COs, who 
oftentimes are really doing their best to support the kids, um, but there's a range of different approaches um, from the corrections officers. And then you also have students coming in and out of class every day. So if you're a teacher in a classroom, one day you might have five students, and the next day you might have three that you know and three new students who've come in and lost the other three. So it's every day or two. Every day can look very, very different. And that's one of the constraints that's sort of unique and extreme, I think, in this situation, is that the teachers don't really know who they're going to be teaching. And the students are jumping into class sometimes without knowing if they're going to be in class the next day or not. Um, students are pulled out for court dates. Sometimes, and in a very beautiful sense, they're pulled out for counseling. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes classes are, the dynamics of classes are just not going so well, even back in the housing unit, maybe not so evident in the classroom. And so the Department of Corrections, the DOC, has moved students around. So students are really very transient on so many different levels. And so that raises huge constraints and complicated issues for teachers. So their lessons have to be kind of geared towards who's in my class on any given day. Mm -hmm. And then the next day is sort of a big, a fresh lesson, maybe even a fresh class of students. So those are some of the constraints that become very complicated. Um, we also know that even if gang-related issues are not so intense on the outside of prisons in certain neighborhoods, mm -hmm. it's shown that they become intensified in prisons um, for lots of different reasons. And so there's a lot of stress, stress and pressure on the students and also on the Department of Corrections to figure out how to house them and how to educate them. So it's like a constant puzzle and movement of students around, which of course makes it very hard to concentrate and stay focused as a student uh, and it's also really hard for teachers to plan and know who's going to be in their classrooms. Um, especially with yeah. um, the high level of... Um, I, I know it's tough to be a teacher, especially um, regardless of you're trying to reach a population, um, especially a high-needs population. Um, some have been diagnosed, some have not been diagnosed. Um, IEPs um, come come into effect, um, whether or not they're actually being fully utilized. There, there are a lot of other constraints. Yeah. Um, the natural constraints, as like a regular teacher would would have to kind of face, w which is just an, a natural problem. Um, and I know it becomes very different from um, uh, incarcerational standpoint because teachers teachers may feel different constraints about their creativity of, of, of addressing some of these, these modifications that couldn't naturally be made on the outside but um, aren't so apparent mm -hmm. um, or, or cannot be apparently made mm -hmm. um, while, right. they're in, while they're in jail. That's right. Um, I'd just like to jump in because I, I completely hear what Greg is saying and we're on the same wavelength and, and we've seen these students in the classroom. We've been in the classroom with students working with them you know, one-on-one -on -one or in the class. And, and this is a, an extremely vulnerable population. They present so many complexities. And as Greg said, they might even be invisible. Like, we don't know what kind of educational trauma or experiences the students are coming in with. But we know that for many of them, it's been a struggle and it hasn't been that good. And a lot of them are coming in with patterns of failure. And you really can't underestimate that if you have students sitting in front of you who feel like no matter what I do, I'm going to fail. This is just a context within which I fail. And I'm an inmate in a jail. Ooh, that's compounding a student's struggles and senses of failure to degrees that many of us, most of us just haven't experienced. Yeah. And so 
it presents a lot of challenges to teachers. And to be very honest, teachers have to be not only at their best, but they have to basically have training in a wide variety of understanding and recognizing special education issues, understanding trauma, understanding development for youth and teenagers, and then, you know, kind of trying to help students communicate these things to them and get their needs met. So it's the constraints and the context are just so complicated. And Greg and I know that for teachers, it becomes extremely stressful as well to go in every day and to try to feel successful yourself in the situation. So we feel like a lot of our job and a lot of our coaching has been to try to support the teachers, not just with curriculum, but with an instruction that's taking into account all these multifaceted issues. Um, and that's that's a big that's Yeah, a big especially task. you're dealing, like she said, yeah. um, the most vulnerable population. And um, a teacher's mindset has to be set and geared towards um, no matter who the individual is, that they can learn um, and, and that they can achieve great things um, as long as That's they right. put forth the effort and as long as they are sitting in, in whatever classroom or um, as long as they're open to, to receiving education and, and learning that, that, the, that the teacher is providing. That's right. And teachers need to have a growth mindset themselves, yeah. right, Greg? And that's we know that not all of us are walking around with these wonderful growth mindsets that are geared towards believing that everybody can grow and develop and change because we ourselves might not be so empowered. And when you're working in a jail situation or, you know, with inmates all day, you don't always feel so empowered yourself. So it's really critical to me that teachers are given agency and support and and know their strength and power in order to develop that growth mindset with their students. Yeah, it's and, big. And if I can just back up the conversation yeah. a little bit, because something that I'm hearing really emerge from what both of you are saying is that you know, there are definitely similarities to the traditional K through 12 space, but in some ways you have the most marginalized population um, that you're working with. And so as a teacher, you have this curriculum, you're thinking, okay, maybe I have this student for a maximum of 45 days. Maybe I'm going to have them for five days. Right. I need to impart some kind of knowledge to do that. I probably have to break down barriers to create some kind of relationship because there's a good chance that this student has had only negative interactions with the state, whether that's the state in its school form, whether that's the state in the police form, and now this carceral form. Foster care. So I'm just wondering, what does the relationship building look like within this kind of educational setting to try to impart some of this curriculum, even though you might see a student only five times? That's a really good question. I know, I was going to yeah. say, relationship <laughs> think, building. Yeah, wow. I mean, well, in, in a minute, right? Boom, build a relationship. But Greg, don't you feel like it depends on the teacher? And that's what's so tricky is that he and I have both remarked on how wonderful and remarkable some teachers are and being patient, empathetic, listening. Definitely going up and beyond, yeah. like, the call itself. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then others, it might not come so naturally to them, and then it's a challenge, mm-hmm. right? And so... It is about developing relationships, but I I think that we would both say that before you develop a relationship, you need to be self-reflective and kind of clear on yourself and confident in that setting and also able to see your students as deeply human and really humanize them and and empathize with their situations. Um, And that's hard. That's That's a big ask. Yeah. Yeah. So it depends. Yeah. I mean, and so I guess... Building, 
I guess, with that. So if the relationship piece is actually harder to do, given all those constraints, you all both had also mentioned this idea of a growth mindset for teachers. So then with, whether it's with the teachers that you've worked with or that um, you've seen in this space, I mean, what does the successful growth mindset look like and how does one work in this space to best help those students, whether they are 14 or excuse me, 16 year old, 20 year old. I, I guess I'm just curious how this manifests itself in such a difficult environment. Um, I would say um, by teachers looking at their practice and self and kind of like utilizing the cycle of inquiry effectively. Um, I know partly a lot of the conversations I've had have been around implementing different differentiation strategies within your classrooms and just teachers being open and willing to try new things. And even though they might not be getting promising results, quote unquote, um, but just having that ability to keep on trying and keep refining their practice until it, it, it's, it's, it's to the level they wanted. Um, I've seen teachers um, adapt the content. I've seen teachers adapt the process. Um, I've seen teachers adapt the product. Um, um, just, just going in and, and kind of looking back at, at their overall objective and, and like just having this relentless heart to, to not stop. Yeah, I, I, I would completely agree. I think that that's beautifully put, Greg, that teachers, they, they need to differentiate, capital D with differentiation in a situation like this and being adaptive and flexible with a capital A and creative, right? Yeah. And so I think some of that is saying like, okay, if you're only up for doing this assignment with a journal entry, and I'm mm -hmm. thinking about ELA or history, then go for it. Go write in your journal or write a letter to George Washington or write a letter to you know, Stalin if that's what we're studying. And in another place, maybe the students are reading documents and writing an essay. So extreme differentiation to, a, to meet students where they're at and allow them to find success in different tasks and different approaches. I've seen some wonderful stuff with students doing publication projects because it both builds in differentiation and student voice, allowing them to express themselves, and then a sense of success, which I think is really important, that they actually have a product, that they produce something that they can be proud of, and that equals success. So I would say, yeah, differentiation, definitely. And so I guess my next question going forward is, I mean, covered the, the vulnerability of the population, the, the difficulties, whether it's with adjusting curriculum or building relationships for educators in this carceral space, um, and all these other factors that influence. Has there been something with your time um, at Rikers where you've seen something that has actually, or you've seen whether it's a lesson or a project or something, really work? Um, with students and, and help them grow or something that has maybe showed how really difficult this work is? Because I'm just trying to think for someone who is listening to this and has maybe never witnessed education within a carceral space, what, kind, like, what should this look like in the idealized form when it totally works? And what are maybe some of the harsh realities that can only be captured through experience and not just discussion? I can go for from like the spectrum of like good to bad, right? Okay. So, um, one instance comes to mind: project-based learning um, in an algebra class, and um, the teacher and I were discussing 
different linear models and and having students actually take the application itself and um, create business plans. So students actually become business owners and um, and, and kind of envelop uh, de- develop like the content needed um, as far as like overhead cost and um, and supplies cost, which which should quote unquote um, grow at like a linear process um, and. Having having doing that and planning this out and kind of seeing the enthusiasm the enthusiasm grow, um, kind of boom you get slapped with the hammer because um, they're now the, the 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 general constraints that I didn't even kind of even think of 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 technology that mm-hmm. that can't necessarily be applied um, to this population um, like the things that you actually can bring in a jail. Uh, um, have have their own is like a whole different set of of um, problems that I didn't even think to address, um, and the 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 most I'll say rememberable or or um, resonating remark I heard um, that day was uh, remember um, this is a jail first, and kind of kind of being like taking a back seat to, to hearing that and and, um, and I can see like um, emotionally like the daunting task now that was that, that was mm-hmm. that was in front of me yeah I mean I don't mean to cut you off but it almost sounds and this is maybe an overreach but this tension that's actually underlying this whole educative process which is there's this dehumanization um, of an individual to an inmate while at the same time, this education is meant to humanize That's right. and restore that inmate, That's right. but it seems that the point. inmate identity yeah. more yeah. often wins out. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's I think it's beautifully put, both of you guys, and I think that what we see that's so valiant is we see the administrators and the teachers basically struggling to humanize their students as best they can, and I think it is sort of an uphill battle because when you identify people as inmates and you strip them, you put them in clothes that they don't want to be in, you take away their everyday life, even the objects that make them feel human, um, and you control their daily movements, um, what they eat, when they go to the bathroom, when they go to school, uh, you know, how they move, then there's a dehumanization factor that's very, very hard to overcome in classrooms. Now, I have seen, and I want to give full credit, We've seen some teachers, particularly with the 18 to 21-year-olds who go to school by choice, they're not just mandated, that feels different. And so the minute students feel they have some choice or autonomy, it seems to change that dehumanization. It kind of flips it a little bit into humanizing. So all these little moves that, that that the Department of Corrections and that the school can make, they all make a big difference. So, so there is hope because you, you can hope to humanize people, but it's to what degree is it possible in that context. Um, and it seems to me that it's, it's, it's very hard to fully humanize people and, and, and allow them to feel and experience being truly human. Um, but I've seen teachers do some wonderful things, and I was thinking back to um, a really innovative science teacher um, whose classroom I haven't gotten to see enough. I most, mostly work with the humanities teachers, but you know, bringing things in to do experiments when there's no lab, the students getting very excited about 
balloons and, you know, creating CO2 using baking soda. Very simple things that are, are really exciting in getting the students, piquing their interest. Teachers who really believe that the students can pass the Regents exam. So mm -hmm. teachers who are working really hard every day with students to set goals and leveraging parts of the exam. And the kids are feeling really respected. And, and I see them, you know, up for the task. So that's a living environment teacher that I've seen doing the work. And then I've gotten, I've had the privilege of working with the ELA teachers as they're leading their students through writing their stories um, and then publishing them at the end. And these are some beautiful projects to get back to project-based learning that give students agency and choice and voice, learning at their own pace, but still with an eye on a product that equals success that could be, you know, common core aligned, mm -hmm. writing a narrative, writing an argument. Um, and so there are some ways to, to support the kids, um, but I think, that, I think that the constraints are great, and, and it is an uphill battle. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess my final question then is, given this kind of seesaw experience between stuff that has been incredibly amazing to see and stuff that has also been difficult to see, um, how do we use that knowledge going forward to maybe think about carceral or education in carceral spaces or maybe just even more generally, given that this is in some ways the most marginalized and vulnerable population, what can we learn from education in this space that might be able to help um, educators in the traditional K-12 space, given that there may be some of the same population, just not in the same numbers? Um. <laughs> don't believe the hype. <laughs> don't believe the stigma. Um, yeah, right. Uh, definitely walking in there, students are generally inquisitive yeah. and, and generally attentive. Um, and um, I, I just say that teachers just need to match that enthusiasm. Um, no matter what the space, no matter what the constraints, match, matching that enthusiasm wholeheartedly, authentically. Um, I, I agree. I think that I'm with Greg. Let's let's focus on the teachers. Curriculum is one thing, but let's really support our teachers and let's understand that not only in jails, but working with vulnerable, marginalized populations who are the students who end up in jails. They are somewhere before they end up in jail or prison, and it's there that we really need to put our energy as well as in the jails to support our teachers both socially and emotionally so that they feel good and they're strong within themselves, they have a growth mindset, they have a positive psychology going into the classroom, um, and that they're also able to be adaptable and flexible and do some of the differentiation that we're talking about. So to me, it's about deeply supporting our teachers in ways that I don't really see our society has understood or taken on yet to, you know, kind of to be all that they can be, um, but to go beyond the curriculum and the instruction and to becoming, um, mentors and supporters of their students in the classroom with a mindset that supports them to grow and to change and, and to learn from their mistakes and, and pick themselves up. So I really, I feel excited about that and I also feel that it's urgent. It's just urgent. Especially since in like a democratic society, education is supposed to be like the great equalizer. Right? Exactly. Yeah, no, I mean, so thank you both so, uh, so much for sharing what you did today. And it's just, it's left me thinking with almost this return of the fundamentals of teaching and in the sense that there 
our kids are humans and they have to continuously be humanized. I think even in traditional K-12 space, when there's a focus on calling kids scholars or calling them students mm-hmm. rather than recognizing the individuality and kind of the humanity of the individual student, um, we lose something in that. Mm. And, and I think this is maybe in some ways the clearest representation of that. Mm. So thank you guys so much Thanks, for Matt. your time and Thanks we'll be back next week. Yeah. Bye. Take care. See ya. Bye.